Thank you, rank ladies, for that great reminder of pure heart. I say we're singing that. I thought, boy, you don't hear those words spoken very often anymore. It's, um, it doesn't seem to be the desire of our culture to live with a pure heart. By the way, Gospel 101, how do you get a pure heart? Just keep trying harder and harder and eventually you'll get there, right? No. How do you get a pure heart? Through Christ. Through Christ. Exactly right. And that ties into our message this morning. Thanks be to God. We can have a pure heart through Christ. Well, I can't tell you how pleasant it is to be in the house of the Lord uh, with you brood of vipers this morning. It's uh, appreciate you slithering in. No, I'm just being I'm just being a John the Baptist preacher this morning. But we are in chapter three of the gospel of Matthew learning from this author about the king and his kingdom. And that's what this entire gospel is about. It's what he immerses us in. Every every chapter, every verse has to do with relating to the king and his kingdom. And in the beginning of chapter 3, those verses, we were introduced to the man, John the Baptist, and his ministry. His ministry was a ministry of repentance. It was a ministry. He was sent by God to prepare the people for the coming king, to prepare them to be gathered around so they were to ask forgiveness and throw themselves on the mercies of God. That's how they could prepare themselves for the king. And you will recall that it was customary for a king in the ancient times to have a herald to go before them to proclaim, here comes the king and get ready for him, make way. But it was also customary then, as it is now, with monarchies, kingships, to have an official ceremony, official coronation, if you will. It's a, an official time when the king officially starts his ministry or his reign or his rule. And that's really what the remaining verses in chapter 3 are about. It's about the, the king being anointed by God his father for his service to minister and to reign and rule in this kingdom. So after much uh, preparation, after much anticipation and hearing about the king, we've heard about his birth. We've heard about how the Magi came and acknowledged his kingship. We've heard about how the king's life was in danger, baby Jesus, through uh, the tyrant Herod. We heard about how he fled for his life into Egypt and then how the Lord called them back into the land. After all of that time, verse 13, we'll read it in just a second, begins with, then comes Jesus. And so now Jesus comes on the scene after 30 years of staying in obscurity. 30 years where for the most part nobody knew that he was there. 30 years of silence, staying out of the public eye. John made his path straight through his preaching, through his ministry, and now Jesus comes. He comes from Galilee or Nazareth, makes a trip to Jordan. And it's in this scene that, in essence, Jesus is being crowned by his heavenly father. And many people use this passage, and you'll see it when I read it very shortly, 
Uh, it's a powerful passage, by the way, for the Trinity, because in this beautiful scene, in this little section of verses, you have God the Father, you have God the Son, you have God the Holy Spirit. And here they are uh, working in their distinct persons, the three in one. So here's when he takes his first steps of prominence. Let's go ahead and read. Verses 13 through 17, 17, and in these verses, I want us to see the coronation of the king, the consecration of the king, and then the, uh, the affirmation of the king. Verse 13, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him. Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from the heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well Pleased. It's in Luke chapter 3, verse 23. Matthew doesn't say it, but Luke tells us that Jesus is about 30 years old. And that's exactly how Luke says it. Yeah, he's about 30 at this time. So that's our framework. About 30 when he made this trip from Galilee to the wilderness to Jordan. Not exactly sure where John was on the Jordan. But he made that trip maybe approximately 60 miles. He walked there. And he made this trip sometime during John's ministry, obviously. And you'll know that John was there. He was a voice in the wilderness. And he was preaching repentance. And people were coming to him. And though he was out in the middle of nowhere, yes, it was a successful ministry. God blessed it. And we think that John probably had been ministering around six months by this time because it, many people came from far off and you know, they didn't hop on the train or take the, the flight there from the airport. They traveled slowly by foot or by mule. And um, so it took a while for people to come and to go. So we're just that would have taken several months. So we're thinking it was probably about six months, give or take. And if Jesus was about 30, then John was about 30 as well, because they're cousins. And John is six months older than his cousin, Jesus. We don't know exactly for sure, but that's a, a good time frame to work with. Many people want to know 30 years 30 years old. Why did Jesus wait till he was 30 years old to begin his ministry? A lot of people by that age have already settled into their careers. Well, some people quote Numbers chapter 4 where it describes the ministry of the priests in the Old Testament. And that's where God set the standard that a priest had to reach the age of 30 before they could minister. As a priest. So maybe they're thinking that that is a good reason why Jesus waited. And that argument kind of falls apart because then later on the law changes to 25, and then towards the end it changes to 20 before you could minister as a priest. So that doesn't hold as well. But some also say, well, that's when David. David was around 30 when he was anointed, when he began his ministry as king. He was anointed earlier than that. Maybe it has something to do with that 
And that could there could be something to that as well. We don't know for sure. But what we do know for sure is this, that that was the time anointed by God for Jesus to start. God has this divine plan of redemptive history and every second counts and every second is is geniusly calculated to be the perfect timing. And we could ask the question, well, I want to know not just why he waited till he was 30. I want to know why God waited for thousands of years before he even sent the king into this lost world. That's a great question. And the only answer that scripture gives us is that at the appointed time, just at the perfect time, Jesus came into the world. So sometimes that's the only answer we have, but that is the best answer. It's a good answer. You've heard the expression all in good time. That's how God works. Everything is in good time and he certainly knows what he's doing. So we don't understand Exactly. Other than that, I mean, well, Moses was about 40, about my age, about 40 when he began his ministry. And uh, but he was 80 before he actually started it when he went back to Egypt to deliver his people. So God just works in different time frames. Of course, Abraham was 90, I believe, when he received this promise that you're going to be the father of many You're going to have a son in your old age. And he was excited, but the excitement began to wane after several years. And they he and Sarah tried some things their own way was 10 years later. He was 100 years old before the promise came. And then you have David, who was really just a kid when he was anointed by Saul later on, became a king around the age of 30. Then you also have Samuel was just a little kid. When God began to speak to him and minister to him and prepare him for the ministry. So God has people and just right, just the right people, just the right place, just the right time. Of course, the big question for us today is, when is the Lord coming back? When is he going to return? And you can write a book about it and make some money pretending you know the answer. But we don't. The answer is all in good time. Every generation sensed since Christ, every generation has sensed we're in the end times. These these have to be the last times. We're just uh, one of many. One of those generations is going to be right. So for 30 years, he remained in, in obscurity. What in the world did he do for all that time? I mean, what was he up to if he wasn't ministering? Well, what he did was pretty much what we do every day. Just the regular daily lifestyle. I mean, he when he was a kid, he did what kids do. He had to do some chores around the house, I'm sure. Uh, he had to learn his school and he had to learn the Torah. He had to memorize some scripture. Uh, he probably played with whoever was closest neighbor. Kids his age. He, he did what kids did at his age. And then when he got a little older and he began to help his dad and he became a carpenter, he worked in the shop, perhaps went out on the site to fix things. And so he worked with wood. Uh, And that day, carpenter could also mean any kind of building product could have been brick as well. So he fixed things. He he built things. He helped his neighbors to be prosperous in their farms to keep them going. 
to give them the tools that they needed. I mean, that's what he did for these 30 years. Nothing in particularly special other than that little time when he was 12 and got waxed all eloquently before the priests in the temple. Caused everybody to scratch their heads. So he just did simple, ordinary things that we all do. And the Bible tells us that he grew in wisdom, grew in stature all this time. And he was growing in favor with God and man. And so there he is in his ordinary life and routine. And all this time, creation is literally groaning for him to come out. Groaning for him to, to take the crown, to wear the crown, to begin to serve as a king. Because creation is groaning for his reign. Groaning for his leadership. Groaning for the redemption that he will come to bring. There's this great need. And there he is going through the ordinary Simple things and routines of the day. And never once do we read in Scripture, though you know he knew his mission, did he grow impatient? Does it tell us? Never once did he say, come on, God, I'm a teenager. I know it all now. There's a perfect time to send me out. Did he get anxious about, you know, hey. The clock is ticking. I'm not getting any younger. The world's waiting. Look at all these lost souls. God. He was in perfect, humble submission to God's good timing. When the Father said, go forth, that's when he would go forth. It was all written. It was all planned. And it couldn't be perfected upon. And so, you have this Jesus, this King... Just waiting for his father. In our text, the hour has arrived. I used to have a professor at college that he would begin the class. We'd all be in class and talking and then he would stand up there and he was actually a professor of preaching. He had his preaching voice. The hour has arrived and that meant stop talking, get in your seats. It's time to begin the lectures. Well, the hour has arrived. He comes onto the scene. He goes public. His coronation is public. No more insecurity. No more secrets. No more hiding. He comes out and whoever was there that particular day to be baptized by John, whoever was repenting that particular day, got to witness this great coronation. And so years ago, about 30 years, it was the, it was the angels that heralded the birth of Christ in the fields to the shepherds. And now John the Baptist heralds the king. Christ the king is here. So he comes to John. It would have been neat to have a little more details exactly what did that reunion look like. I mean, they're cousins. I'm curious, how well did they know each other? What, how did this scene go down? Did they, did they hug and embrace? I hadn't seen you for a long time. You've changed. You look great. We don't really know how long it had been. We don't really know. How well they knew each other. Did they do a fist bump? I mean, what kind of greeting was this? But here they are. Did they play as kids? Maybe. We know for sure they knew of each other. Their parents would talk about, I'm sure, John the Baptist and Jesus. The mothers, anyway. We just don't know or have a good feel for how, we, how well they knew each other. But here they are. Jesus made the trip, he came to John, and he is there to get baptized. He wants to, he wants to be dipped. 
in the water. Now, as we read in the text, uh, there's a problem with this. There's a, John has a problem with this, and we should have a problem with this, really, if you think about it. So we want to look at this carefully. Um, matter of fact, John has such a problem there, he, 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 he practically prohibits it. The scripture says he prevents it. It's a very strong word. It's like, this isn't happening. Not on my watch. We can't do this. So what is wrong with this picture? Well, obviously, what we have learned about baptism is that it is an external symbol of an internal change. The ministry of John was to call sinners to repentance. To call those that have transgression in their heart, offenses against God, to come before the Lord and, and ask forgiveness and throw themselves on the mercy and grace of God. And to be converted. Repent by changing directions, forsaking evil and loving God. It is clearly a ministry for those that need to be cleansed. So what do you do? With the Christ, God, the son, the king that comes and wants to be baptized when he is without sin. He doesn't need to be clean, clean. There's nothing to repent of. He has lived an absolutely perfect and sinless life. And not only that, when you when you follow that line of reasoning and John trying to stop this from happening, text tells us he's also thinking, now, look. In real life, you're sinless. The last thing you need to do is for me to dip you in this water and bring you back up with the symbol of cleansing that's taken place. However, I am a sinner. You are in a class of your own. Now, I am a sinner. I'm a one among many. What would really be good here, what would fit the picture, is if you baptized me and brought me out of the water because you're the holy one. So John is struggling with, with this. I mean, he, he's serving God. He's doing a great job at serving God in his ministry. And he has a good sense of right and wrong. He's called it. I mean, he called the Pharisees and Sadducees. What are you doing here? Uh, matter of fact, it's the exact different or opposite problem of what he had with the Pharisees and the Sadducees who come to be baptized. And he said, what do you got? You brood of you snakelets. You haven't repented. You only go to the waters when you repent. There's no need for me to baptize you if you if you have not repented. And yet he's saying to Jesus, I'm not going to baptize you because you don't need to repent. So it's an opposite problem. So I just see John. He's in this quandary. His sense of right and wrong is being challenged. And he, you know, he's all about glorifying this king, exalting this king. He wants to decrease so the king can increase. And so he doesn't want Jesus to make a mistake this early in his ministry, perhaps, where he would be misunderstood. There's something wrong with this picture. So he tries to hinder him because to John, it is backwards. By the way, it's not only a powerful passage about uh, the Trinity, but it's also a powerful passage that teaches the sinlessness of Christ, isn't it? Because we wouldn't even have this whole scene if Christ was a sinner. John would have just baptized him. It would have fit perfectly, but because Christ is without blemish. 
it just twists John all up. He doesn't know what to do here. He's got this authority figure telling him to do something wrong in his eyes. But what a beautiful passage. If, if you ever need a text for um, how do we know that Christ without, was without sin? This is a great example. Well, John was undone because he didn't want to baptize him because he knew he was sinless. He's greater than the greatest prophet, holy, undefiled. So his sense of right and wrong is being challenged here. If baptism is for sinners and Jesus isn't a sinner, then what does Jesus have in mind? There's got to be something, obviously. Well, he tells us what he has in mind in verse 15. He answered him and he said to John, let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. By the way, uh, finally the king speaks. He doesn't say a whole lot. But we haven't heard him speak yet in Matthew. We know in Luke that he went to the temple and he spoke very, very eloquently and wisely. But here he speaks. And these are the words that are recorded And John understands him enough to where the final result is. He goes ahead and baptizes Jesus. But Jesus acknowledges this awkwardness. He sees John struggling. He says, I understand. I understand why this is awkward for you. I understand why you are trying to prevent it. There's tremendous hesitation in your spirit. It doesn't quite seem to fit what how God is using the ministry of baptism with how I want to get baptized. But John, you got to, in essence, you got to work with me here. You might not get it all, but there's a good reason for it. It'll come to you if you're not getting it all. I want you to permit it for now. Let it be so. It is fitting. John's whole argument was this does not fit. This is not fit with the ministry or the picture. And he's saying, yes, actually, it does fit. There's that word fitting again. This actually becomes, um, becomes both of us. It's a beautiful thing to do in the sight of God. It, it is fitting. So how can it be fitting? Well, he's telling John, you've got to come at it from a different angle. If you look at baptism only, if you look at this act only with the eyes of baptisms for sinners, you know, the logic A plus B equals C. And Jesus got back baptized, therefore Jesus must be a sinner. Yeah, your, your sense of right and wrong is all messed up. But here's the angle you have to look at it from. You have to look at it from heaven's perspective of righteousness. Because I am doing this to fulfill righteousness. But what he's saying is, yes, I am a righteous person. Therefore, I am going to do all that is righteous. And this is a righteous thing to do. He doesn't do it to make himself righteous. He's already righteous. But what do righteous people do? They do all that God requires of them. They meet every righteous expectation from a holy father. And he is saying this is a requirement from God. Therefore, I am going to meet it because I am a righteous person. And that is the way I can fulfill Righteousness. Jesus' whole life was a fulfillment of righteousness. Everything he did back in obscurity, those 30 years of just doing household chores, helping dad in the shop, resting, sleeping, playing, cooking, building, fixing, whatever it was. It was all pleasing to the father because it was done in perfect righteousness. So if it's something God requires, he's going 
to do it. Not because it makes him righteous, but because he is righteous. So it's, you have to look at it from that angle or no, it will not make sense. So to be clear, John's baptism understood through repentance is required for sinners, not required for Jesus. He doesn't need to be cleansed. He's already righteous. So you see, it's a different angle of obedience. He does it for himself because he's righteous and he also does it for every sinful man. Because if he does not completely live a righteous style, then he is not pleasing to the father because there is blemish found in him. But he does every little thing, whether it's paying taxes righteously, uh, whether it's building or fixing things, whether it's singing psalms or praise, whether it's offering sacrifices in the temple. All of the requirements from God are met in Jesus Christ. And he does it not because he needs it. He does it so that sinful man can be saved. In essence, he did this for you and for me. Isaiah 53, 11. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteousness, righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. We talked about this in Sunday school. In Ephesians, this imputed righteousness that Christ has. So he's doing this not so he can be justified and perfect before the Lord, but so that he can do that for us, so that he can share his righteousness with us, so that we can find the favor of God. So at every point is absolute submission. Every point of his life, every act, every thought is absolute obedience so that we can have his righteousness. Apostle Paul talks about it. Philippians 3, 8 and 9. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own by the law. Can we have a righteousness? Well, we, we can do good things and we can be perfectly and honestly sincere about them. But we can never attain perfection. It's, we haven't, no matter how sincere we are, truthful we are, we're not going to obtain that perfection. Paul realized that, although he tried to gain it as a Pharisee. He realizes this, and so he wants the righteousness that he gets from Christ. And the way he gets it is through faith, believing in Christ. John Piper says, all the righteousness that would be required of men... Before the court of God, Jesus performed. And so he joined fallen humanity for whom he was providing righteousness in sharing their baptism. This, this scene, our salvation depends on the sea. John MacArthur says Jesus came into the world to do one thing, and that was to identify with what? Sinners. That's the reason he came and in order for him to fulfill all of God's righteousness, in order for him to purchase righteousness for anybody, he had to identify with sinners. And in the incarnation, Jesus saw himself as one with sinful man. So Jesus is baptized for us, for the glory of God. That we might attain his righteousness. So just just some quick application. Everything we have All the benefits we have in God, 
We only have them because of righteous Christ. We have them because of the mysterious message of the gospel. Whereby Jesus says, I will take your sin, I'll take your filth that is offensive and under the wrath of God. I'll take it, I'll bear it, I will. I'll give my life to it. Even though you deserve it. And what I'll do in exchange, even though you don't deserve it, I'm going to, the righteousness that I am and the righteousness righteousness that I have attained by every act, I am going to give it to you. I'm going to let, I'm going to robe you in my righteousness so that when the Father looks at you, he sees perfect holiness. And of course, he's going to love you. When he sees that there's nothing that will hold you back from the benefits of God. So every benefit that we enjoy in God. Is because of the righteous acts of Christ. So things that we have enjoyed already this morning. The benefit of coming into the presence of God through worship. The benefit of even knowing God at all. The benefit of salvation. The prayers that have taken place. The benefit of the body of Christ. And the community. Sharing one another's burdens, loving one another, the benefit of hearing that guiding voice and the benefit of the indwelling Holy Spirit that we long for. All of that comes to us. Everything that we have from God comes to us because of Christ's righteousness. Without it, we would not have a single benefit. But what do you like about God? What do you like about God? Whatever it is, you have it because of Christ. So this is a picture as we think about this picture of Jesus in the water. Some churches have it in their baptistry. Paintings, the Jordan and the baptism. Think about it with tremendous gratitude. Picture it and and connect it with gratitude in your heart. Because that's what flows from those waters. Of righteousness is the, are the benefits of God. Let it be so now, he says, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. So there's the coronation. Then we see consecration or setting apart. Verse 16. When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove. And coming to rest on him. So just as a little rabbit trail. If, if anybody asks you. Uh, why do you people at New Covenant Fellowship. Um, baptize by immersion instead of sprinkling. You can say well we try to be like Jesus. And that's what Jesus did in the Jordan. John took him down. Raised him up in the newness of life. Right. That was a baptism by immersion. Actually. If you want the, the reason, and I understand the arguments of sprinkling, but that's the main reason we baptize by immersion here is because we believe it is the most scriptural way to do it as you search scripture. That word is baptizo. And the word actually literally means to dip or immerse. And it's not a word that was just used for ministry. It was a word that was used in common daily living. And so in John uh, I think it's chapter 13 where Jesus, they're sitting around uh, the table there at the Last Supper. And Jesus whispers, they're talking about who's going to be the traitor? 
Who is it? And he says, to the one I give my bread after I have dipped it, after I have baptized it in the sop. Um, John thirteen twenty six. It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped or baptized the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon. It's the same word. That bread was baptized in the sop and then it was eaten. So that's that's the idea. It's a dipping. It's an immersion there that we follow it. It's interesting because if the translators just would have gone ahead and translate that as dipping or immersion, we wouldn't have all the different modes of baptism that we have today. But they left it baptizo. And so now everybody gets to decide what mode that is. The important thing here in this scene is that when this takes place, the heavens, they, they open. It's almost like I just picture maybe God's hands kind of opening the heavens to look down and visit the earth. What does it look like for the heavens to open? I've never seen it. The Apostle Paul saw the third heavens and was taken up. And he said, basically, uh, can't go there, guys. Can't really describe it. It's not meant for me to share it with you. But the heavens open. And here comes the heavens open and the spirit of God, the spirit of heaven, the Holy Spirit comes through this opening, this crack, whatever it is in the sky. And and people that are there see it in the form of a dove and it comes and it lands on Jesus. Of course, it's in the form of a dove or it's in a form of something because the spirit's visible, not invisible. Now he's visible. The spirit's invisible. So in order for us to see the spirit, he has to take on some kind of manifestation. He has to do something so that our eyes or our senses can pick up on it. Whether it's the blowing of wind where you see the leaves. At least we see a manifestation of the spirit. So it's when the invisible becomes visible. Something that we pray for. Every Sunday in the pastor's office before our service is Holy Spirit, manifest yourself in us today. What are we saying? What do we want to happen here? We want the invisible God and we know he's all around us. He's omnipresent. We know the spirit of God is here. We want him to make himself visible. We want him to do something in our hearts that we wouldn't ordinarily see. Something that's not of the flesh, but something that's of the spirit. Whether it's supernatural, whether it's an act of humility, whether it's an act of asking forgiveness or granting forgiveness or reconciliation or just exuberance and joy in our worship. Whatever it is, we want God to be made visible in our services. If you're wondering, that's what we want. And so when we when we have opportunities for the spirit to to go uh, visible, to be seen in our body, we want to obey those promptings. If we have a word, sometimes maybe in our worship, you might really feel compelled by the spirit to share something with the body. And if you're not sure about it, ask the leadership. Say, this is what I think God is doing. Uh, It wasn't so long ago when we had that message on the Psalms and, and Corky was like, I believe the spirit would have us not ask, but only offer praise today in light of the sorrow. Sermon, And that's what we did. It was a manifestation through an individual who was obedient to that prompting. And the more obedient we are to these promptings, guess what? The more we see of the Holy Spirit. 
He's already here. He cannot be here because he promised. And we are the church of the living God. So keep that idea of manifestation when we gather to worship. This is an important scene and it's important that he was seen as a dove. Um, This is how we know it was the Holy Spirit. And that was the form the Spirit decided to take on that day. He's come in different forms, tongues of fire, wind, and so forth, but it was a dove today. And this was important. It was especially important to John because when God was preparing John for his ministry, in essence, he was saying, John, there's going to come a point in time in your ministry when the king is going to come to you, the Christ. And here's how you're going to know without a shadow of a doubt that this is the one you don't want to Proclaim, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Wait a minute, that's not the one. Behold, the Lamb. So you want to know exactly which one it is. So God said, I'm going to, uh, here's a sign that you look for. When the, the heavens open, when the Spirit comes upon him in a way that is absolutely indisputable, that's the divine confirmation that he is the one. We see that in the first chapter, John, verses 29 through 34. Um, He says, I'm going to go ahead and read it. I was going to skip it for time's sake. But the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. I receive the divine confirmation that I've been waiting for. You can imagine John during his ministry. He's waiting for the one to show up. So, again, we don't know how well they knew each other. Y'all, you get the impression that maybe they hadn't seen each other for for quite some time. Maybe John was suspicious and had a good idea that his cousin was the one. Maybe he knew it here But he had not had that divine confirmation yet. And here it is. And it comes by the heavens being cracked open. And the spirit coming. Because there's the sign that is undeniable. This is the king. This is the Christ. This is God's son. This is the lamb that's going to take away the sins of the world. Now I know. And some of you thinking, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. But when you read on... John's ministry, he gets put in jail, and he has his disciples go and say, Guys, go ask Jesus, is is he really the one? Is he really the one we've been waiting for? And you say, what's with that? Well, uh, times were rough for John. Uh, He was in prison. He was being rejected and persecuted. Jesus, by this time, had quite a a few enemies, and his ministry was kind of going downhill, so to speak. So the ministry, this whole plan of God thing, wasn't working out in John's head like he thought it was. 
It's turned into a painful experience. It's not as effective as he thought it would. And he had second guesses. And he just needed to hear it. Because things didn't pan out like he thought it would. And so, Jesus didn't say, ye have little faith. He said, remind John of the big heavenly plan. Tell him what I'm doing. He'll connect the dots. He will not second guess again in essence. It'll come back to him. And he will die a man of great faith and knowledge. The divine confirmation that was needed. So the heavens open and the dove descends. Uh, why a dove? Why does Spirit choose a form of a dove? Again, we don't know for sure. If you think about the dove in the Bible, you think of perhaps Noah and the ark. It was the dove that came back with the vegetation that was a sign of peace. It was a sign that the flood waters or the wrath of God was subsiding. And now there's hope for a new world. There's hope for a new start. And peace with God. The wrath is over. Some might picture, well, the doves were used in the temple sacrificial system. And so it represents the sacrificial offering to God so that we can be right with God in good standing with God. And all those things uh, are, are very meaningful, but we don't know for sure. They certainly come into play. Uh, Jesus reconciles man to God. That's his ministry. Jesus gave himself as a sacrificial lamb so that we can be right with God. And that's his ministry. So maybe that was in mind. But this is the only time that he manifests himself as a dove. So we don't want to carry it too far. But what I want to close with is this. If Jesus is God, and he is, then doesn't he already have the Holy Spirit? I mean, how can you be God and not already have the Holy Spirit? Because to be God is to have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. I mean, that's who God is. So why does he need this Holy Spirit that he already has? He doesn't need anything. He's filled with God. Well, it's in the sense of his humanness. Remember, he came to identify with humanity as a human. And so he's 100% God in that sense. No, you can't fill him anymore with God. He's perfect, exact representation of God. But in his humanity, he needs the Holy Spirit, just like we do. What do we read in the Gospels? Well, Jesus grew tired. I mean, he, he got thirsty. He got hungry. He has the human limitations. It's, it's not this boundless, endless strength. What he fought for, he earned through human means. And in order to do the supernatural ministry, he needs the Holy Spirit in his humanness to give him that strength. And so God opens the heavens as if to say, this man, this Jesus, this is my son. And I just put my spirit on him. And now he has my strength. Now he has my ability, though he is human, to do all that is required of him to fulfill his mission. So it's a divine heavenly coronation. He's ready for kingly service. And then we close with the affirmation. Behold, a voice from heaven. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. 
And we can get gushy about those words. And it's wonderful, of course, we talk about how wonderful it is for a father to, to tell his son, you know, I love you and I'm well pleased. Every son longs to hear that. This is very important for us. Because Jesus say Jesus could have come and been this great guy, really compassionate, serve everybody. Everybody loved him and recognized him and accepted him and embraced him. But if God the Father did not accept him, it would have all been in vain. No matter how much we loved him and worshipped him and cared for him. The, the, heaven had, the approval has to come from heaven. And it did. And God said, in essence, that's my boy. That's my boy and I love him. And I have examined him through and through. And he is pleasing to me. He's never not been pleasing to me. He was pleasing to me when he was a little kid. He's pleasing to me when he laid in the manger. Pleasing to me when he was playing with other kids in the neighborhood. Pleasing to me when he helped dad in the shop. Before he did any spectacular ministry. He's pleasing to me now and he's pleasing to me as the king. He's got my power. He can do these things in my name. He can heal in my name. He can forgive in my name. He can die in my name. I approve of him. So he's chosen. He's fit. He's worthy. He is our king. So we close with this realization that Jesus is the king and he has been anointed with the Holy Spirit. And what did he leave the church in his absence as he sits at the right hand of the father? He leaves the Holy Spirit. Why? Because there's still ministry that is taking place. What kind of ministry? Well, a verse, let me quote it, that you should be well aware of if you're an old timer at New Covenant Fellowship. Isaiah 61. You just read a few verses. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted and to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. You see, there's still ministry to take place there. There are still heart hurting, broken hearts, are there not? There are still those of us that are in bondage to sin, that need to be set free, that are believing lies, that are living lies. There are still those that are downtrodden and taken advantage of that need justice. And so the ministry that Jesus began is still very much alive. The Holy Spirit is still here and there's work to be done and the power is there to do it. The anointing, God has left the anointing that Jesus had. He has left that anointing from heaven upon us to bring glory to him through this ministry, through the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit. We cannot do it without the Holy Spirit. So Holy Spirit, come, come upon this little body of believers in our weakness In our humanity, give us the strength. Give us the passion of heart. The will to live obedient lives. To be the salt and light that that God has commissioned us. To bear the fruit that keeps with repentance that God has commissioned us to bear. To, To be grateful instead of complain. To give instead of take. Holy Spirit. 
anoint us, descend upon us, give us gospel strength. May God bless the preaching of his word.